0: roughly 70 years earlier, exiled under Babylon. The Persian Empire defeats the Babylonian Empire. The Persian king Cyrus issues this edict returning these refugees back to their homeland, back to Jerusalem, back to Judea, and all they encounter is just rubble and destruction, and they are crying out to God. Uh, where's the glory and where's the hope and God says I'm restoring broken things and you all are part of this plan and you're to rebuild the temple you're to rebuild the city and so on and so you know our question this morning is what does an ancient prophet speaking to a bunch of returning refugees in a war-torn city in the Middle East have to do with us? Does this have any relevance for our lives? I think it does. Let's stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to begin in verse 7. I'm just going to, for this portion of the sermon, just read through verse 17. The first of the, the two visions we're covering this morning. We'll get to the second one in a minute. This is the word of the Lord. On the 24th day of the 11th month, Which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. And I said, What are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long? Will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease, for while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask for your mercy to us who have heard your word. Help us to receive it. Help us to take it to heart. Help us to be changed by it. Help us to know that you, in fact, will bring to a fully satisfying conclusion all that is going on on earth and in heaven, and to trust you as King of kings and Lord of lords. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So, this is the first. Uh, We just finished uh, reading the description of the first of eight. Uh, Different but but parallel visions, and we're going to spend the next few weeks um, looking at these different visions. Um, Part of what's difficult about the the prophets, whether they are minor prophets or major prophets or any of the the, the books of the Old Testament or even the New Testament, books like Revelation that are apocalyptic in their their genre, where you've got a lot of um, symbols and signs... um, oracles of judgment, uh, things that really just sound very different uh, and foreign to our ears, part of the problem is that they they overwhelm us and confuse us. And we don't get much help by um, some maybe overzealous commentators and scholars who who are uh, reinforcing kind of this idea that in order to understand these parts of the Bible, you need a secret decoder wheel. Uh, so listen to, to one commentator, one scholar who says things like, all right, so you've got this myrtle tree, right? And so the myrtle tree, everybody knows, is indigenous to Israel, and it symbolizes, therefore, the nation of Israel. And so, okay, the myrtle tree, that's Israel, and you, know, you click your decoder wheel and, and get that aligned. Uh, and then you move on to the next uh, little imagery that it happens to be that they're in this glen, right? A glen, maybe your translation reads a hollow or a ravine, or a valley, and uh, again, to read this, um, this scholar, he says that may, may indicate that the nation of Israel was at the time in a, in a period of deep humiliation, right, sort of symbolic of the distress of the, 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 the people of God um, returning as refugees from their captivity, and so, you know, there's this parallel imagery, and you click your decoder wheel to humiliation, And then you keep going, and then you get to these different horses, uh, uh, and I'm quoting the author again. The variegated coloring of the horses may well indicate that the mission of God would be mixed. Red usually points to the judgment of war, and white usually points to mercy and peace. Sorrel, uh, also translated speckled, dappled, tawny, or any reddish brown color suggests a combination and mixture of God's works. Click, 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 click with your decoder wheel. Like, does, does God really require us to have that degree of interpretive skill, allegorical wisdom, and so on? Is that what's necessary to, 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 to understand what God is sharing with us? Wouldn't it just be simpler to go with what we know? Um, You've got horses. There's horses here. They're different colors. There's a bunch of them. They're in this, you know, um, kind of thicket of myrtle trees and so on. What do we know about horses? We know about horses what people have always known about horses, which is that up until about 200 years ago, the fastest that any person could ever travel on land was what a courier could do on the back of a horse. That's what we know about horses. Horses are fast. Horses are strong. Horses are are reliable. Um, It's no accident that when uh, when we did begin to uh, obtain the means to go faster on land than a horse, when the steam engine came to power and when people started to figure out how they could use that steam engine for locomotion, you know, choo-choo trains, and so on. It's no accident that a steam engine was measured. Its power was measured by uh, in terms of what? 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 What's the term? Horsepower. Uh, and that when uh, when a fellow named George Stevenson, his his uh, uh, he developed the locomo- locomotive and uh, and and when he in eighteen twenty nine. He built the fastest one ever at that point in time, and it could go uh, at a a whopping 30 miles an hour. You know what they named it? Rocket. (laughs) Rocket, the choo-choo train. Um, 30 miles an hour, and that was the point at which we started to become able to travel on land faster than a horse. I mean, that's just crazy to think that up until, you know, almost 200 years ago, nobody had ever gone any faster than 30 miles an hour. Uh, There's a a Greek historian, his name's Herodotus, he's actually considered the father of modern history, like he was the first true historian, and he lived just after Zechariah did, right, so he was born in 484 B.C., uh, and and he's, um, one of his sayings was that there is nothing in the world that travels faster than these Persian horseback couriers. So that was just, you know, in that period of time, there was nothing faster than a swift horse. And that's what we're supposed to take from this imagery. Nothing terribly symbolic here, just to, to, to know and to understand that God has is, is rallied his patrol, this patrol that's going out to all the corners of the earth. And in verse 8, Zechariah is describing seeing all of these horses standing among the myrtle trees, and Zechariah asks, what are these? What's the significance of this vision? And the angel who talked with me said, these are, um, in verse 11, uh, they are standing among the myrtle trees, and we have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. That's, That's what we're supposed to take away from this is that this patrol, which sounds like, a, it sounds like a western movie, it sounds like you know all, all the cowboys have, have come in from riding all day and it's sunset and there's a campfire there and they're there in Mesquite Gulch you know, to share their news after being out patrolling the east and the west and the north and the south and they come back. And, and the Lord's patrol reports that all the earth remains at rest. And This sounds nice, but it's not. This sounds peaceful, but the problem is that the whole earth, uh, the, the parts of the earth that are at rest are the Lord's enemies, Israel's enemies, the, the, the countries and the nations, the kingdoms that have oppressed Israel. And you know how it goes when your enemies are at rest. That means that they have kind of gotten their way. They're satisfied. It went the way that they wanted it to go, and it's been bad for you and good for them. And so, you know, they're, they're feeling just fine. This is why the psalmist cries out in Psalm 123, Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Those who are at ease, those who have oppressed God's people, have oppressed abused them, and have been harsh with them, could care less. They have no remorse, they have no regrets, and they have no repentance. And therefore, it's not good that they are at ease. So that's the first vision. The nations, the enemies are at ease. Uh, The second vision begins in verse 18. Uh, You can look in your bulletin or in your Bible. It's printed there. And Zechariah sees a second vision. I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. The horns that are at ease, the kingdoms that are at ease. Horns like horses. Um, mean what they've always meant. You don't need a decoder wheel here. What does a horn represent? A horn represents strength and power. It's why when uh, somebody goes out uh, for a day of hunting and they get a doe, you don't hear much fanfare about that. Or even if they get a little four-point buck, like, okay, you know, all right, I got a little venison for the freezer. But they come back with a 12-point rack you're going to hear about it for months. You're not going to hear the end of that. It's going to be posted all over their Instagram, all over their Facebook. It's going to be like, you know, let's call the taxidermist, let's mount this thing right above the fireplace because this is awesome. Because that, those antlers, that rack is a symbol of power and strength. And say what you want, but a hunter feels like I have dominated over that much power. There's something machismo going on there. I don't know what it is. Um, so if if that's you, no offense. I hope you didn't take any. Um, so so anyway, that's what the horn means. Don't read too much into it. Don't get confused. Oh, I don't know what the horns are. Look, they're kingdoms. They're enemies, and they may well be the four different kingdoms that you do come across in Zechariah, like Babylon, like Assyria, like Egypt, and like Persia. It, maybe it's those four kingdoms, maybe it's some other kingdoms. What's important is just to know that these are, these are horns that are exalting themselves against Israel, and they're Israel's enemies. And then the, the rest of the vision, the second vision continues, then the Lord showed me four craftsmen And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these craftsmen have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. Question. How do you stop a fourfold alliance of enemy kingdoms? God's answer Send for craftsmen. Send forth smiths. Send a blacksmith. Send a stonemason. Send a carpenter. Send an electrician. I mean, what? Are you with me in the tension here? Like, what, what kind of answer to, for deliverance is that? Um, maybe you saw the movie Dunkirk, or you're at least familiar with what happened. It was the end of May, 1940, uh, and Germany has the upper hand. The Nazis have the upper hand, and they've backed all of the Allied armies into a corner, into a beachhead in France at Dunkirk. 400,000 British, French, Dutch, Polish other, I think there's other countries represented there too, but 400,000 soldiers are sitting ducks. Uh, in the movie, there's this exchange uh, between a colonel and a commander. Colonel Winman says, they need to send more ships. Every hour, the enemy pushes closer, and the commander, Commander Bolton says, they've activated the civilian boats. And the colonel just kind of does a double take. Civilians? We need destroyers. We don't need charter boats and fishermen. We need troop transports and destroyers. What do you mean sending four craftsmen? We don't need fishermen. Well, let me ask you something. In a blacksmith's tool bag and a stonemason's tool bag and a carpenter's tool bag and let's even throw in the plumber or the electrician. What tool do all four of those people have in common? A hammer. They all have a hammer. Uh, it's a stretch but I want you to go with me with this. Imagine, Imagine Imagine God sending as an answer to prayer for for deliverance, to to destroy four enemy horns, four enemy kingdoms. What if he sent four Thors? Now now we're on to to something. Now we're seeing, all right, there's there's a connection here. You know, one who can wield a hammer like nobody's business. And then you start to see the wisdom in what initially felt really foolish of God. Why would he send a craftsman? If you know the rest of the story at Dunkirk, um, the Luftwaffe have, had bombed out the piers, so none of the um, uh, deep hold vessels could dock. I mean, it was like pointless. Even if they could get destroyers in, there's no way they could have evacuated the troops. What they needed uh, were, were shallow vessels, like fishing boats and so on, that could come right up to the shore, could come right up to these jetties that had been built and, uh, and evacuate. And they evacuated out of the 400,000 soldiers, allied soldiers, they evacuated 330,000 of them. 330,000 of them that were sitting ducks. And it really truly became known, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury deemed it the miracle at Dunkirk, it was a miracle. 400,000 soldiers thought they were going to die on that beach, and it was a miracle. They were praying, Lord, send us a miracle. We need a miracle, and all those little boats start showing up on the horizon into the English Channel, and that's how we pray. We pray for God to, to bring a miracle sometimes. I don't know anybody in this room that's not praying for some kind of miracle, There's nobody in this room that doesn't have some kind of lament, some kind of prayer. Lord, how long? When will you right this wrong? When will you bring righteousness to bear? Look at verse 12. Uh, the, the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these 70 years? This is, this is honest prayer Um, this is the stuff that doesn't do the superficial kind of Christianity where you come in and you smile and you sing praise songs and everything's happy and good and um, and then you go home and back to your depression and then you go home and you go back to a bitter marriage or then you go home and you go back to faithless children or then you go home and you go back to your awful miserable dead-end job And then you go home and you go back to your cancer. Or then you go home and you go back to, you just fill in the blank with whatever it is that is just sucking the life out of your soul. But you don't feel like you can be honest about it here. Lord, how long until you take the hammer to those who have hammered us into the dust? How long till you cast down the horns of those who make life painful and lift up our horn? How long until you answer Psalm 75, all the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up? How long until you make things good again, God? How long until we win If you're an Eagles fan, you know how to lament. (laughs) If you're a Patriots fan, you don't have any idea what I'm talking about, (laughs) because all you do is win. (laughs) What do you do when your prayers for help, when you do, when your prayers for change, when your prayers uh, don't seem to be answered with help, but instead with yet another hammer blow. Not to your enemy, or not to the problem, but to you. What do you do when your depression doesn't lift? You just get sadder. What do you do when your loneliness doesn't go away? You just get one more friend who writes you off. One more date that didn't go well. What do you do when, you know, one more kid or grandkid, you know, makes a bad decision? I think really you have two options. I mean, when it all boils down, you you can lament or you can leave. That's what people do. So God's people have always done. They'll lament or they'll walk away. You can walk away, but let's be candid, that's just impatient unbelief. Uh, Walking away says, Lord, I'm not going to wait on you. I'm not going to wait this out. I've had enough, and I'm going to go do my own thing. A lament is a stubborn faith. It's a God-glorifying, honest, candid, stubborn faith that says, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. And it just hangs in there and just says, I refuse to leave. You're good, I don't get it, but you're good, and I'm just not gonna go anywhere. Um, this is what a, a, a philosophy professor at Denver Seminary, his name's Doug, uh, I think I'm pronouncing his name, his last name right when I say uh, uh, His his wife came down with dementia. She used to be his editor um, and she would make all of his papers and books, you know, that much better until she just couldn't even really read anymore. Um, and he just, it's just this slow descent into her, her dementia. Um, and he's written about it, and he's honest, and he's, he's good, and you can trust him. Um, and he, he, he tells this story about how uh, a lot of religion, even even some Christians just can't They don't have a category for grief and lament. Um, He says, we all bewail the injustices, suffering, and terrors of this life, but not all worldviews make room for the full expression of human personality amidst these misfortunes. So for instance, the Zen poet Isa, um, Isa is Arabic for Jesus, by the way. Uh, The Zen poet Isa lost several children and his young wife. And in his deep sorrow, he went to a Zen master who told him that life is due. Life is due. And it all passes away, and one must adjust to the inevitable. This is the Buddhist teaching of non-attachment to the impermanent. But Esau, made in the image of God, and wanting a better answer, wrote a short poem in response. Life is due, life is due, and yet, and yet. Isa could not accept the cure because Zen did not understand the disease. Life is more than due. Zen let him down because it would not let him inhabit his sorrow. Jesus lets us inhabit sorrow. Jesus understood sorrow. Jesus was the man of sorrows. And to our lament, God gives us gracious and comforting words. You see in verse 13, the Lord answered. The angel of the Lord Uh, The Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. God is not silent when we suffer. He does respond. His answers to our lament are his gracious and comforting words. I know sometimes what we'd rather have is action. But he's not silent. He says in verse 14 cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. God says that he's a jealous God. And that sort of, we don't know what to do with jealousy. We, 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 our, our category is largely negative for jealousy. But what happens when somebody is jealous? If someone's jealous for you, what does that mean? What does it mean they will, they will do? What are they willing to do? They're Relentless. They're not going to give up. Somebody who's truly jealous has a passion and an energy that is just indefatigable. It won't stop. And it's for you if they're jealous for you. And all of a sudden, what we sort of uh, generalize as something negative because we only see negative examples of jealousy, all of a sudden, that becomes something incredibly positive as God reassures us that he is the jealous husband of his bride, the church. And this means that if someone else makes a move on his beloved, he will make a move on that enemy. He will not stop. The Lord is exceedingly jealous of you. Another way to say that is that the Lord is exceedingly for you. The Lord is exceedingly for you. And in verse 15, it says, He is exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry, but a little they furthered the disaster. And God made good on his promise. In the first vision, he made good on, uh, in the second vision, he made good on this promise to send these smiths, these craftsmen. Ultimately, he made good on that promise by sending a single smith, a single craftsman. Carpenter. He knew how to wield a hammer. This is um this is a unique hammer. It's a special hammer to me uh, because this was my pop ops hammer. Uh, it's old and it's it's kind of rusted as you can see. But it actually has a leather handle. It's uh, a leather binding around the handle. They don't make hammers like this anymore. Um, but uh, this was my pop ops ha- hammer. Uh, And it it really does feel pretty comfortable. Jesus knew how to wield a hammer. His dad taught him. Joseph taught him how to use a hammer, and I wonder if the hammer that Jesus used was the hammer that Joseph gave him. But, you know, when Jesus came along, people were kind of upset. He's saying he's the the Messiah, but he's he's not some you know, captain of an army, where's the hosts, Where's the where, where are the, all the uh, soldiers who are going to take out Rome and vanquish God's enemies, so they become impatient with him. People wanted an army general, not a woodworker. I don't want a flotilla of fishing boats, they want destroyers, right, and yet God sent a carpenter. And Jesus, who knew how to wield a hammer himself, Um, was a victim of the hammer blows. And the hammer came down on his right hand, and the hammer came down on his left hand, and the hammer came down on his heels. And he incurred God's judgment at Golgotha the hammer of God's anger at sin and unrighteousness and wickedness and everything that's wrong with this world and everything that makes this world not the way it's supposed to be, all of that came down on Jesus. Because Jesus knew that before the evil out there could be made right again, the evil in here has to be reconciled to God. It has to be atoned for. It has to be judged, and it has to be wiped away. And if things are going to be good again, there has to be satisfaction. There has to be a a big eternal exhale and, and a sense of shalom, and it is good again. And that is what Jesus accomplished for everybody who has faith in him. Your sins, my sins, the the sins of all who trust in Jesus are taken away because Jesus endured the sentence for our sin. He became accountable in our place. And that's what gives us a new start. It makes us new creations so that we can become men and women, young men, young women, even boys and girls who are pursuing righteousness and repenting of unrighteousness and becoming an answer to the prayer for this world to be made right again as we participate in God's kingdom and as we pursue a life of righteousness, justice, and peace ourselves. That's how it works. And that's how his kingdom comes and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven as we wait. As we wait for the day when he brings ultimate satisfaction. A day that was pictured for us three days after Jesus took the hammer blow. When there was another hammer blow at the resurrection. Where Satan and, and sin and death thought that they had bruised Jesus' heel, and Jesus crushed their head. And just as sure as the resurrection is real, so is that day coming when he will make everything new again. This is what's pictured for us at the end of this passage. In verse 16, the Lord says, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy, and my house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched over Jerusalem. There's one more tool that's in all these craftsmen's toolbox. It's a tape measure, right? What happens when the tape measure comes out? What what comes to mind when, you know, you see somebody start to do this? What, what 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 comes to mind when you see somebody starting to take those measurements? You know, and I know, we all know that something's about to happen something's going to be made new. It's you going to be repaired or constructed brand new, but the, the end result is going to be better. And we can't wait to see what happens. And that's this picture that God's giving us, the measuring line, the measuring tape is being stretched over the new Jerusalem. And God is at work right now to make all things new, and ultimately there is a day coming when everything will be put to rights, and it will be this... Long, eternally satisfying, exhaling, shalom. Things are good again. And lament will be no more. And pain will be no more. And tears and sadness and death will be no more. And in the meantime, in the meantime, we just don't leave. Don't leave. Lament is stubborn faith that refuses to leave. And it trusts that God will make good on his promise in verse 17. Where we're told to cry out again. My city shall again overflow with prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And will again make everything new. So let me pray for us. Father, you know the burdens that are on our hearts, and you know the, the hard places and the dark places, even the evil places that are within us. And we pray that you would take them away uh, by the virtue of the gospel, uh, through repentance and through lament, Lord, that you would first of all make us new and then use us to make all things new. Lord, that you would um, minister to us in the midst of whatever pain is going on in our hearts. Lord, would you help us to be courageous as we trust in you and as we determine that we will just have stubborn faith that refuses to leave, no matter how hard it may get. And I pray for those here who have really been considering leaving. They've really been wondering, is this worth it? I pray you'd show them Jesus. Show them the hammer that fell on him in our place and show them the resurrection and show them the promises that you have to us, the comforting words that you speak to us. And Lord, give them strength to to not leave and to lament. Lord, for all of us, um, please show us uh, mercy.